psalmist puts it this way, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Psalm 25. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the rich privilege it is to gather here with God's people, to lift up our hearts, to offer you a sacrifice of praise from our lips. Lips, Lord, that respect you and love you and adore you. We thank you that you are sovereign over us, O oh God. What a place of security we live in to dwell in the presence of Almighty God in the shadow of the Almighty. Under your wings we take refuge because you love us and care for us. And now, Lord, thank you for the instruction from your word. I pray that you would help our hearts to incline, to respond, and to apply, and to receive, and to welcome your word. For it is life to us. The Holy Spirit brings it alive in our lives. And I pray that that would be so today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And amen. John Maxwell, who has, I understand, authored about 71 books, writes this with respect to an organization. He says that, particularly a Christian organization, God determines the effectiveness and results. Personnel determine potential. Relationships determine morale. Structure determines size. Leadership determines direction. When um, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, stated to his disciples that he would build his church, the master builder himself has entrusted his church to certain individuals in terms of leadership. In this particular series, we are in a section now entitled, How is the Church Governed? Last week, we looked at the government of the church itself. And this week, we are looking at answering the question, who has Christ appointed to watch over you? A very important question I would assume you uh, would think, and so you should. And uh, as we look around ourselves, certainly in the arena of cultural leadership, it's certainly lost its way. We don't gain much uh, by way of example looking around at the, 
the secular leadership that leads by polls, leads by popularity, leads by power, leads by the preservation of that power, which is completely opposite to the context and the atmosphere of leadership that Christ has set down for us. Good morals are rare. We see that for the most part, leadership in the secular is pandering to the huddled masses who pro provide absurd novel ideologies that are hatched out of reprobate minds. And the leaders test the direction of the wind to see which way they should go. So last week we looked at governance from the perspective of the scriptures and we learned that there isn't a lot of detail in terms of structuring the leadership of the church. In fact, I, I think if we could, we could give a, a descriptive statement of the church itself in terms of structure, it appears to, to us that God has said, keep it simple. It seems that that's what, it, what, what the scriptures, there's a there's little bit of de, little detail. Um, we know that governance is about accountability, it's about empowerment, but minimal structure, detail scripturally, certainly, uh, but plenty of organizational biblical principles. Gene Getz in his book, Elders and Leaders, uh, writes this, if the Holy Spirit had designated spe specifications for carrying out specific functions, specific forms for carrying out specific functions, we would have been severely limited in practicing biblical Christianity in other cultures of the world and at different moments in history. It is the sheer wisdom of God that kept the structural detail of church administration very simple so that it would transcend history and culture and that Christianity could thrive in whatever culture it was in, in whatever, whatever epoch of history, whatever era it, it found itself in. And so that's the reason we have minimal detail. But in terms of leadership, there seems to be more detail in the scriptures. And that's what we want to turn our attention and focus our attention for the next two weeks. We'll look at half of the leadership structure this week and half, Lord willing, next week of, of what the Bible details for us. Have you ever been placed in a situation where you were... Um, there was no one who was assigned to be leader. You know, like in one of those breakout groups, I always hate those breakout groups. You go to some conference or convention, whatever, and they're now break out into small groups and let's discuss things. And I'm like, this is going to be a colossal waste of time because no one's assigned to leadership. It's awkward. It's aimless. You're all staring at each other. You don't know each other. And, and um, um, it's, it's, you know, it's bad stewardship. And suddenly, of course, someone decides, well, someone has to be secretary or lead or whatever. So someone jumps in. And, and of course, you know what it is when volunteers jump into leader. They would never be the leader that you would choose. So it's, it's just a whole bad setting. And, and it's, it's a guy or a woman who's like, I've always wanted to lead. This is my moment. And um, anyway, I hate those situations. Well, we don't have that in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't leave us floundering as to as to how the governance of church should empower their leadership it, and, and how the details should unfold. It's found for us in Scripture. In fact, you see in the title itself, Acts 20, Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 5. There, there's plenty of Scripture that gives us detail so that we are uh, without excuse if we don't structure our leadership properly. 
There's no reason we can't. And there are key hints from Scripture as to where the emphasis of leadership should lie. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Timothy writing to, uh, or Paul writing to Timothy, describes the church this way. He says, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And we're ever wondering, what is our purpose? What is our role here in, in this society that we've been placed? We are the pillar and foundation of the truth. So it gives us a bit of a hint in what kind of leadership uh, direction the church should take. Also, of course, we studied this a week or so ago in Matthew 16, 19 and 18, 18, that the church has been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the authority to bind and to loose. So um, in terms of the church, winging it was never God's plan. It's very, very struct- it's very, very planned out in terms of leadership and direction. Who should lead, how they should lead, in what way they should lead. And they should specialize for sure in the truth. The one thing that leaders of churches need to be able to do is specialize in the truth of God's word, knowing it and living it. So I want to cover five questions with you this morning uh, in terms of establishing New Testament church leadership. Uh, and uh, simply put, we want to see what the Bible has to say about, about leadership in the church. What do the scriptures authorize us to do and to be? That's the question we need to answer. So we're going to go through the scriptures. I'm, I've put some on PowerPoint for you so that because just simple speed to go through some scriptures quickly, but we'll land on some and look at them in more detail as well. And uh, so the first question is, what is the New Testament evidence for leadership? Do we have anything in the scriptures? Because we need to find that out if we do or don't. What is the evidence, New Testament evidence for leadership in the church? The earliest evidence of leadership, of course, beyond the apostles, because we know that that was the starting point, is found in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. There was a a, a challenge that was taking place in the early church and, and those, uh, the apostles said, look, we, we've got to appoint some leaders to look after some administrative details, some specifics of the church. And so some like to think that this was the first um, um, uh, direction or the first idea toward the office of deacon in the church. They weren't called deacons, they were just men filled with the spirit, but it's possible. Twelve years into the Christian ministry, into Christianity itself, in Acts chapter 11, verse 30, there is the assumption or the description that elders already existed. In Acts 11:30, the, the verse says, this they did, sending their gift to the elders uh, from Antioch to Jerusalem, there, there was a, a famine, and th- this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So there were elders already in view in the New Testament church. In Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and this would be in Asia Minor, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So the elders were appointed in the local churches in the book of Acts. Then 30 years later, Paul, in his fourth, we think his fourth missionary journey, 
from Macedonia, writes to Timothy, who he leaves in Ephesus, and we're going we're gonna to spend some time in this text, 1 Timothy 3, you might want to even go there because we'll get there eventually, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 15, whereby he gives lots of detail about the kind of individuals who should be leading in the church. Now, we, as we read through the book of Acts, we read through our Bibles, we're thinking things are like zip, 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 but, but they're not. We're talking now 42 years of Christianity before there was very detail, specific detail about who would be the leaders in the church, at least their qualifications and their characteristics. Now, Acts, in Acts, Luke is recording... In uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28, Luke is recording Paul's discussion with the elders in Ephesus. And listen to this. This is important. Watch what he says. To the elders among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's a very, very informative but powerful verse. It details there the description of the elder and their responsibilities and reminds those who are leading the church of the great value of the people they are watching over. People bought, purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's an expensive group of people to be caring for. People purchased with his own blood. It's not accidental that Paul added that. It's not like they didn't know that. It's not like they didn't know the gospel. But he added that to the elders in his final instructions to the elders of Ephesus that they would oversee and shepherd the people of God, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then Peter in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, confirms what Luke uh, describes when he says, I exhort the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Now, why is this all important? Well, you remember last week, of course, I mean, it's important because it's God's word, but what is it, how does it fit into today and what we're talking about? You know, last week, we talked about various structures uh, historically of churches, the Episcopalian style, the Presbyterian style, the Congregational style. The Episcopalian style is very complex, very hierarchical with all kinds of leadership structures. The Presbyterian style is a little less complex but very similar in its hierarchical structures. And then you have congregational governments that are quite simplistic in their structures. And I would draw your attention to the point that a lot of these hierarchical structures have been based upon the, uh, what I would say is the misinterpretation or misunderstanding of, of the description here of church leadership. Look at what it says here, that elders shepherd and oversee. It's not talking here about three different levels of leadership in the church. It's not talking about elders and bishops and pastors as if they're different hierarchical levels in the structure of God's New Testament church. They are clearly stated here as if they are one person. These layers of 
of complex hierarchical structure that have been established in, the ch in church history are, are invented layers. That's not the New Testament picture. Elders who oversee and shepherd. That's it. That's the description. Elder is the person. Overseeing and shepherding is the role. Elder, bishop, pastor in the scriptures are the same person. The person is the elder. The role is shepherding and overseeing. In fact, the translation of the word episkopos, which is overseer, into bishop, is another carryover from another era of church leadership. It should really not be translated bishop. There's no real bishop. There's elder who oversees and shepherds. Shepherd, pastor, same word. It's a function. So what that means is these are not separate structural levels of church leadership. What it also means then is unless you qualify to be an elder, according to the New Testament, you do not qualify to be a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer. A very important New Testament leadership detail that we need to get out of the way right away as we move through the text here. So at least the New Testament, um, in the New Testament, it's not appropriate to address someone as pastor unless they meet the qualifications of elder, which we're going to look at in a few moments. Now, I know many of you have come up through all kinds of mixtures of this kind of stuff. You know what we're trying to do? You, you understand our goal in this series. Our goal is to find our way through the weeds and cut ourselves through extraneous human inventions and get ourselves to the primitive New Testament church and ask the question, what does God's word say about these things? And how do we respond to it? Now, the idea of elder, of course, means older, mature, but in the ancient Near East culture, which of course this is entrenched, would usually mean a person 30 years of age, roughly, or plus. That's roughly when the idea of elder, but it means experience, not immature, uh, not, a, not a novice in the, in the faith. 1 Timothy 3.6. So we have another elephant to get out of the room right away. And that is the second question, which is why men? Why does the, do I believe, or, and, and I intend to demonstrate to you from the scriptures, why do I believe that the office of elder, pastor, overseer is limited to men? Because again, everywhere you see different structures, you see different ideas, but what does the Bible say? Remember we've been teaching you over the past number of weeks that you're all priests of God, yes? We've learned that, right? We're all priests of God. But some of us are leaders, and out of that, some men are elders. Where do we get this? Well, there's three places that I uh, believe we, we can see this in the scripture. And, and uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you're not already there, we're going to look at the text of scripture, we're going to look at the context of scripture, and we're going to look at the theology of the purpose of church and home as an illustration 
as an object lesson of divine reality. Okay, those three things are going to form what I believe the, the scriptures teach. So let's look at the text first of all. Here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, pastor, elder, same thing, he desires, he desires a noble task. Now look it. The overseer must be above reproach and the husband of but one wife. Notice that. Down in verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. A few years ago, I was hosting a tour to the land of Turkey. And uh, we had a busload of people, many of them from this church, and uh, myself and Lynn, and uh, we picked up our Muslim guide, because in Turkey, that's pretty much what you get. We picked up our Muslim guide. The, the agreement there is always the Muslim guys tell about the history of the, the country, and the, the, the Christian tour operator, tour leader, which happened to be me, would handle the theology. That's how the partnership works. Anyway, we, get up, we load ourselves on the bus, get on the bus, and uh, you know, I introduce myself to the, to the guide, uh, the, the Muslim guide, and he sits there for a while, and we're, we're driving in the bus, and we're going, so, so he says to me, after some uncomfortable silence, he says to me, um, so who's the holy man here? So I said, he said, um, because you all seem to have wives. It's like, yeah. So I said, well, I guess I'm the closest to what you think you're asking as the holy man. And he said, you're a Christian? I said, yes. He said, you have a wife? I said, yes. He said, how in the world can you be the holy man then? Because you're not, are you a priest? And I said, well, we're all priests. Now, now that was it, that was it for him. He was like, <laughs> he was like, you're all priests? He said, yes, we're all priests. He says, I don't understand. And I said, um, I said let, me, let me guess. You've always had a tour whereby the leader was a Catholic priest. And he said, yeah, is there something different than that? And I said, yes, the bus that you presently are, are guiding. I said, uh, and I'm going to, he said, well, I didn't, I didn't think you believed like, that you could have a wife if you were the church leader. And I said, can I just open up the scriptures for you, please? And I opened up to this text and I read the text and I said, uh, a pastor must be the husband of one wife. Like his jaw dropped almost to the ground. He said, like, I can't believe that. That's what it says in the Bible? I said, yeah, that's what it says. He said, well, I never really, I knew, I didn't know that because of who I had guided all these years. So here you have this text, and it says that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he must be the husband of one wife who manages his own household well. There are two primary responsibilities that we're going to, you know, we're going to put all of this together, but two primary responsibilities. He must be overseer, must be the 
the husband must be a husband, and to be a husband of a wife, you need to be a man, and you need to, uh, in terms of leading your home, your family well, that your children obey and properly respect you, you also need to be the head of the household, the, the father of the house. Now, I realize that in some cases, women have had to take responsibility because they've, either their husband has died or, or abandoned the family, and women take the responsibility of of being in charge of their family, and they have to by necessity. But that's not the design that God has in mind for us in the church and in the home. So you have this picture here. So that's the start. That's the text. It doesn't leave really room for a female role here, but there's more to that because Paul is writing now in context. Paul is writing to Timothy a letter, or, you know, when you write a letter to somebody, I suppose nobody writes any letters anymore, it's like texting someone or whatever, and if you're, if you're texting someone, you're writing a, a flow of thought. You don't just suddenly pop, you usually don't just suddenly pop in on a subject, but you're, you've got a flow of thought coming. Now, Paul has a flow of thought going here, which begins actually in chapter 2 for certain, and there were no chapter breaks when Paul is writing to Timothy, there's no verse breaks here. He's just writing a letter to give instructions to Timothy. And chapter 2 happens to be instructions about the church and how the church is to conduct itself. He talks here about, you know, I want men everywhere, in verse 8 of chapter 2, to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And he's, he's, he's on a roll now in terms of subject about what the church looks like and how it should conduct itself. And then he says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was first then Eve and Adam was not the one deceived it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with propriety and he keeps going here is a trustworthy saying if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer he desires a noble task now the overseer must be above reproach the husband of but one wife and um, at uh, in, in verse uh, the end of verse 2, must be able to teach, must manage and oversee the, the uh, church. And so he's already established in context that women are not permitted to do the very major tasks and roles that an elder has to do. An elder has to be able to teach the whole church, and an elder has to be given responsibility for authority over the church, as given by the governance of the church. So he defines in context, before he even moves into the elder description, that he has, has made it uh, uh, clear that, that uh, women are not going to be able to be in this role, even though he makes it clear by how he describes it in the text. So all of that's clearly described here, but the big question is why, in my mind? Why was this so important? Why, why did the Holy Spirit uh, direct Paul in the design, the scripture of the church in its leadership to, to uh, preserve the role of, of uh, leadership for men only? In the text, why? Is it because women are unable to teach? No. Some of the best teachers I've ever had have been women. Is it because women can't lead? No. Women have 
women have, some, some women have led and are currently leading pretty significant countries, like Germany, a woman before led England. There's been a lot of significant and prominent women capable, more than capable of leading. Is it because a woman can't structure and manage and administrate? No, that's not why. Lots of women are ex excellent at administration and many far superior to men in organization and structure and all of that. It has nothing to do with that. The, the, the reason is that in the home and in the church, the design of both is not about abilities. It's about purposeful design that advertises the theological truth of who God is and how God relates to the Trinity and how God relates to the church. The church is not designed, the ch church was not purposed to be a, a demonstration to the world of human abilities. <laughs> if it were, there's a lot of us would never have been called to the roles that we've been called to. The design of the church and the design of the home is to advertise the manifold wisdom of God and who He is. Everything we do, everything about us, is not to bring congratulations to ourselves. It's not to bring glory to ourselves. It's to deflect glory to God and show Him as wise and, and, and great and, and a, the great designer. Male and female relatedness are an object lesson of a higher divine reality. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul reminds the Corinthians that, that the head of women, or the head of men, the head of women is man, but the head of man is Christ. And the head of Christ is God. It has nothing to do with an equality issue between Christ and God. It's a structural reality that is portrayed for us. When you get to the original design of Genesis 2.18, you have there that the woman was made as a helper suitable or a complement. Differing rules to show the intelligent design of God. How brilliant God is. We see all around us a secular breakdown into absurdity because there's a rebellion against the design of God. But not so with you, God says. Not so with the church. Not so with your homes. That you wouldn't be people who, who demonstrate gender confusion and design disruption, but rather you would be those who recognize that my perfect design is to be portrayed as an object lesson for the world by the church and by the home. This is so crucial to us to understand the why, in my opinion. We have the, the how, we have the, the precepts, we have the restrictions, we have the instructions, but we need to understand that we are theater of theology. We are demonstrating to the world what the world is failing to do, and that is to portray the glories of a great and intelligent God who has designed us for His purposes. We are not showcasing, <coughs> excuse me, human abilities, but an institution to advertise the nature and reality of God.
male leadership of the church and the home is biblical because it is ideally illustrative of the theology of who God is, how he has created, and how the Godhead relates to itself and to the church. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, or 5, sorry, 23 and 24, and talks about marriage being a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery because it illustrates the love of Christ for his church. The love of a husband for his wife, the submission of a wife to her husband, are instructions to us first and foremost because of theological truth, to demonstrate to the world how Christ loves the church and how the church responds to Christ. Theology comes first, and human praxis is the object lesson and illustration of divine truth. That's so critical. And a rejection of that or the rebellion of that messes up everything. So, what men then? According to Hammond in his book, those whose gifts and qualifications are recognized by God's people as equipping them for pastoral ministry. Remember the governance model that we think the, you know, we think the New Testament teaches, which is the congregation is the government, and the government empowers certain individuals to leadership. And, these, and who are these individuals? Well, Hebrews 13, 7 is pretty instructive to us. Remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And, and Paul in, in 1 Timothy 3 says the, this person, these people should be above reproach. The stress in the scriptures in terms of what men? Men of character. Men who are exemplary. That's the stress in the scriptures, above reproach. That word above reproach means literally not to be laid hold of. In other words, there is nothing untoward that sticks to them. Their, the wrongdoing doesn't stick to this guy. Sinless? No, of course not. We all sin. But not an easy target for moral criticism. Someone with high moral standards, someone who's highly principled, particularly in the list of the 14 things that you find in this chapter 3. So they're really break, gathering this, collating all of this together. It seems to me there are two major uh, descriptions of what men. And the first is moral respectably, moral respectable examples. 1 Peter 5.3, Peter says, be examples to the flock. Leadership is about being an example of the right direction and the right way to live. Hypocrisy tanks credibility. We've seen this. It, it, every, every human being, for the most part, is, has a real aversion to hypocrisy. It, 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 it really rubs us the wrong way. When people say something and do the opposite, 
We, we've seen this played out, especially during this, this weird time we're living in. We watched um, the Premier of Ontario's, some of his cabinet, check out at Christmas and head to the Caribbean after telling us that COVID was so dangerous. And we, we had to ask ourselves, well, how dangerous can it be when the leaders who are telling us it is dangerous take off for a vacation? You know there was a big stir in Ontario about that. People were saying, you know, what, what's this? This is hypocrisy. And some people lost their responsibilities because of it. And in the church of Jesus Christ, you can't have people leading the church telling you one thing and leading totally the opposite. And so character matters. Moral respectability matters. The second major uh, feature of, of what men is marriage and family excellence. In, in 315, uh, 1 Timothy 315, Paul describes the church as God's household. Now, we know what that picture means. And as God's household, he expects the church as an illustration of how, it, how, how a household should be led, makes marriage and family excellence a big deal in church leaders. You see here that he talks about it must be the husband of one wife, or a, a one-woman type man. Uh, the, the leader in the church should demonstrate what loving his wife looks like because he is actually living out a demonstration uh, and an object lesson of how Christ loves the church. He's a key example to that, a key uh, 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 yeah, key example of that. He, and, and it should be, he, the, this person should demonstrate excellence in leading his family because the church is a family. He should demonstrate excellence in leading his family to be faithful servants of Christ. If this man's kids don't buy his stuff, then why would the church? And so there's an a, a expectation here that the children, it says here, if anyone, it's just literally what I just said, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of Christ's church? There is this expectation of family and excellence in family. So much is made of character. Almost nothing is made of education or giftedness or certificates or training or experience. And all of those things are good and important. But, but, it's, but you need to notice that the Holy Spirit drills down into the area of character. Character. Absolutely character over education, certi certification, training, experience. So then, fourthly, what do these men do? These men who are life-seasoned shepherds. Do you remember when Jesus was um, recommissioning Peter? at the end of John, end of the Gospel of John. And he asks Peter in terms of really testing his qualifications for the next leg of the journey, he says to Peter, well, what does he say to Peter? I'm gonna test you. What, what question did he ask Peter? Do you love me? And Peter, well, Lord, you know I love you. And suppose he wanted to grab him in a big bear hug and wrestle him to the ground, give him a few noogies. But that wasn't what Jesus was looking for. 
That wasn't how he wanted the demonstration of love, was it? He, he answered him three times. He said, then feed my sheep, right? And feed my lambs. Care for my lambs. So when you ask the question, what do these men do? They demonstrate their love for Christ by feeding and caring for Christ's flock who he purchased with his own blood. That's an awesome responsibility. And so I see this breaking down. In fact, it says in Titus 1.9, appoint elders who hold, the government of the church should appoint elders who hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage Exhort others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So in addition to character, they need to know God's scriptural stuff. That's what I see here in the text. We are, as elders, to be able to provide, able to teach, to be able to provide, to give you healthy food. Now, I know that all of you dine around I know you don't come here alone and this isn't the only place you dine. I know you're all over the place listening to people. It's unnerving to say the least. I have no idea who you're dining, where you're dining. You can be out there getting really good food because there's, there's lots of, we don't have the market share cornered here on all good teaching. Just about, Pastor Kel, but not all. There's a lot of good stuff out there. So I know you can find good stuff out there. Fine, I'm happy with that. But there's a lot of junk food out there as well. And there's a lot of toxic food out there as well. Our role as elders is to feed you healthy food. We are being played these days, played by the left and by the right. And it requires a lot of discernment to cut through all of the weeds and find out what is the really good food. You know, we all are capable by the power of the Holy Spirit of knowing right from wrong. We are, there's no excuse for us not knowing that. But the real discernment is to know the difference between what is right and what sounds right but isn't right. And the same way that we have a preconceived idea that there are some people or the, some side of the culture that no matter what they say, it's wrong. Well, that's not true either. Some of the people that are totally wrong most of the time, every so often say something right. So we shouldn't automatically say because they said it, it's got to be wrong. We're being played by both extremes. That's what elders are required to help you and protect you, provide for you and to protect you from toxic food, from snakes that want to bite you, from wolves that want to eat you. Satan all purposely plants false teachers in the church, the broader church, the great, greater church. And if you get teaching wrong, it means you get application wrong. And if we get application wrong, that means you take something into your life that is perilously wrong. It really matters what, what you are being taught because the people perish for the lack of revelation. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says there that you should obey your leaders 
and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you realize what this keep watch over word actually means? It's, it's the word sleepless. They remain awake and alert intentionally and incidentally. This is what it means to care for the flock of God. This is what it means for leaders to understand the responsibility of being accountable to God for the flock of people that he actually, that Christ actually paid for with his precious blood. That is an incredible responsibility. That's what causes elders who are to, to lose sleep regularly, remaining wakeful, remaining alert. That's what it means to be an elder and stay up Saturday night, late, midnight, past midnight, pouring over the scriptures one more time, another time, over this sermon one more time to make sure there's nothing there that is, that is misguided or misjudged or misrepresented. That's, that's what it means to get up every Sunday morning before this, long before the sun is up and to go over and pour over it again and pray and, and read it and, 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 and make sure that God's people are being served healthy food and cared for. That's what this means. And the fourth is oversight and leadership. God's household managers, Titus 1.7, calls elders stewards of the church. Stewards responsible to Christ, who is the chief shepherd. But that means oversight and leadership, leadership team of elders directing the affairs of local New Testament churches. That's the vision here. Being called, appointed by the church, and empowered to lead the local flock. Certain men are called to watch over God's flock, his people, and are directly answerable to the chief shepherd. Finally, what should you do? What's your role? Very quickly. That's the role of the elders, responsibility, the qualifications, who they are. But what should the church do? Uh, there's lots of things, but give, give four, top, four, four of my favorite th ideas and things. One is to make sure you appoint biblically qualified men to lead the church. The church is the government. And the government's to see that biblically qualified men are called to lead the church according to the scriptures. That's your role. You are to appoint, or you, to, you are to support that biblical leadership. We don't have time right now to look at 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 21, but please would you do that as an assignment? It's your assignment. It's what you, are, what you need to know. To support biblical leadership, authorities vested in God's word, and as elders lead scripturally, the church governance should structure itself to provide and protect those teachers. And beloved, we are going to need your protection more than ever in the coming days. Watch. Watch for accusations. Watch for trouble. Watch for mischief. Watch for direct attacks. Your elders are going to need your protection. Pray for your elders. Spiritual work done by spiritual men under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's about praying. 
That's about calling on the Lord. That's why people gather here before the service and pray for the, the, the elder who's going to teach. That's why many of you come in here, I know, in the morning and before you do anything, you sit down, you pray for the service and you pray for the teaching. That's why many of you, maybe before you leave your homes, you pray for the service. You pray on Saturday night. You pray for what's going to take place. I know you do that. that it's critical. That's, your, that's what you must be doing. We are only as effective as God's power anoints us to serve and to, to teach. And then finally pitch in. Ephesians 4.12, do you realize that the idea is elders are to equip the church to do the ministry? This isn't a sporting event where you watch professionals do ministry. This is an all-in reality where those who are appointed by you teach you how to do ministry, equip you with how to do ministry. So highly value the gifts that God has given to the church, the gifts of leadership to you, to equip you, to protect you, and to lose sleep to care for you. Let me close by giving you a couple of takeaways and then we're finished. Takeaway take number one, are you fully invested in the life and ministry and decision-making of this local congregation? Are you fully invested? To be totally available to be a maximum impact disciple. To be able to do whatever God gifts you to do. That there might be no limitations on what God can do in your life. That requires membership. Secondly, are you fully engaged in your biblical responsibilities toward your pastors? Are you appointing biblically? Are you supporting biblical authority and leadership? Are you praying for and are you pitching in to utilize the equipping that you get from your leaders that enables you to go and do ministry? That's what God's asked us to do. Steve Croker, thank you for that blessing this week of sending along Psalm 25. Strengthened my heart for sure. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. We love you. We thank you for your word. It instructs us. I pray, oh God, that you might find a church that, that seeks in every way we can to model ourselves after the New Testament primitive church. We don't always know why you design things the way you design. We, we don't regularly know why, Lord, you do things the way you do them. Your ways are above our ways. We are called to obey you because there is a reason. We watch as those around us disregard your word and, and, and catastrophe occurs. So Lord, let not the church stray away from the word of God, thinking that we know we're smarter, that, that we have better cultural structures and leadership principles from secular minds and, and wonder why things start to fall apart, why the foundation is shaking, why, why our country is disintegrating well, it didn't start with the secular. It started with the spiritual. By disregarding the scriptures, oh God, we, we repent. And Lord, we ask that you would call us, call churches, call local churches first to obedience to you before we start chirping at the secular level about them and their moral disintegration, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen.